This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. All right, let's move on. Um, you know, certainly aftermath of uh, what happened in Charlottesville uh, back on uh, August 12th, then a lot more focus on well, a couple of issues. Certainly uh, the threat posed by the far right. And again, it was a uh, white supremacist who murdered somebody that day. And we should remember that. I can understand and appreciate those who want to show up and counter-protest when avowed white separatists, neo-Nazis, and white nationalists take to the streets. But does that justify violence in response to that? A story from Politico just a few days ago. Federal authorities have been warning state and local officials since early 2016 that leftist extremists known as Antifa had become increasingly confrontational and dangerous. So much so, the Department of Homeland Security formally classified their activities as domestic terrorist violence. This is according to interviews and confidential law enforcement documents obtained by Politico. Does the threat posed by the far right justify a violent and confrontational response from the far left? I don't think it helps. I think it's counterproductive. I think it lets these white supremacists and neo-Nazis off the hook. It gives them an excuse to point a finger at somebody else. Joining us to offer an explanation for who and what Antifa is and this approach, Mark Bray joins us. He's uh, the author of a new book called Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. He's a historian at Dartmouth College. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, I mean, Antifa, obviously that's uh, shorthand for anti-fascist, which I guess Mm -hmm. really in a way we we should all be. But what does Antifa represent? What do we need to know? Right. So certainly most of us are anti-fascists. We oppose fascism. We oppose white supremacy. But when we talk about Antifa specifically, it refers to essentially a tendency that, that goes back 100 years, but in its modern form grew out of Britain and Germany in the 70s and 80s when a wave of xenophobic backlash against immigration from the Caribbean, South Asia, and elsewhere emboldened a neo-Nazi skinhead movement that started targeting immigrants, targeting leftists, and so forth. So the first Antifa groups in in the modern sense were these self-defense groups that organized to shut down the growth of the far right. In North America, we can see this politics growing into anti-racist action uh, starting in the late 80s into the 90s in the U.S. and Canada, And really the argument being made here is that when far-right politics grow uh, without any sort of response, that's the real threat. And we can see historically that the original fascist and and Nazi nuclei were actually rather small before they grew large. That's essentially the politics, and it is a pan-left revolutionary socialist politics. These are radical leftists, uh, not people in the middle of the political spectrum. Right. I mean, this this does seem to represent the far left, and, and certainly as we, we've seen this, this movement before under, under various banners. So does mm. Antifa have uh, an ideology, per se? Well, you know, as I said, it's a pan-left movement, so it's a way for socialists and anarchists and, and different radical leftists to put aside their differences over social transformation to get on the same page to oppose the far right. A few of their main principles, though, that are worth um, putting at the center of the conversation. One is no platform for fascism, which is essentially the perspective that rather than seeing fascism as sort of a simple difference of opinion, to see fascism and white supremacy as political enemies that in an organized form do not deserve to be treated as legitimate by society and should be stopped before they grow. And, of course, part of that, as, as you mentioned at the outset, is a recognition of the legitimacy of self-defense 
self-defense understood both in an immediate sense and at times in a preemptive sense based on the argument that when left unchecked, fascist and white supremacist groups are inherently violent. Well, and we've seen that they are. But does, does violence justify violence? Well, that's, a, that's the important question. And certainly reasonable people will disagree about that. I think that to understand, though, is that really, for the most part, most Antifa groups resort to confrontation as somewhat of a last resort because most of what they do is nonviolent, whether it's researching far-right groups, trying to find out the identities of key figures to tell their bosses or their neighbors, to try and find out about clandestine you know, punk rock shows or white power conferences in hotels and cancel get uh, venue owners to cancel them. So in a certain sense, when you get to the point where, as in Charlottesville, there are several hundred white supremacists marching with shields and clubs, and they're confronted by anti-fascists, that in a certain sense is sort of the last resort when the previous forms of organizing haven't happened. And in that context, we can look to the comments made by Cornell West and other clergy that anti-fascists, in their words, saved their lives when there were no police around to protect them. And so at least in some cases, it seems evident to me that self-defense collectively is a legitimate response. Well, I think legitimate self-defense, people can understand. Uh, this sure. kind of, this notion of preemptive self-defense, that seems dangerous because now you're leaving it to the hands of the person who's going to commit the act of violence to make that determination. And, and we've seen instances where people have been assaulted uh, that maybe don't necessarily have anything to do with these, these far-right movements. Well, certainly whenever you have popular politics, the decision is in the hand of, uh, hands of the people that make social movements happen. That's true of blocking traffic when we're marching. It's true of all these kinds of cases. And, of course, it's especially important when it comes to confrontation. Um, even in the case of self-defense, when does immediate self-defense become necessary is, to some extent, a value judgment. But really, you know, I think that the argument that anti-fascists are making, which people will take for what it is, is that historically we can see that when these groups grow, when they establish social centers, when they get embedded into society, when they manage to promote xenophobic and, and hateful perspectives, immigrant communities, LGBTQ communities, leftist social spaces are inherently under attack by the, the potential of that growing and being able to stop it, usually by nonviolent means, but of course confrontation is, is on the menu. Those kinds of methods are necessary to prevent the threat from coming to people's front doors. That's the argument that's being made. Well, it's counterproductive, though. I think that's uh, one of the arguments being made by some people on the left, saying that this is this is a distraction. This this gives people an excuse not to focus on what the far right are doing, but to focus on the far left or to play this game of whataboutism, uh, that there are good people on both sides or bad people on both sides, that, that this takes the focus away, that it's counterproductive. Well, that's certainly the argument that, that Donald Trump made, right, is that you have good people on both sides, you have bad people on both well, sides. Well, it allows them to do that. Well, right. So the question is uh, two things in my mind. One is, is it the case that authoritarian figures and fascist movements always scapegoat someone and blame someone? I think that that's true. We can even see during the fascist movements uh, and anti-fascist movements of the 20s and 30s that, for example, I saw the other day that when there was a large Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden in New York in, in the late 30s, the newspaper coverage was criticizing the anti-fascists who were being rowdy outside. So you're always going to have that dynamic, not only in terms of anti-fascist resistance, but to some extent in terms of popular social protest in general, is that there's always, even if it's blocking traffic or marching, there's always this kind of media narrative that these troublemakers are causing a problem. Of course, it's accentuated in this context 
But I would encourage listeners who are trying to make up their minds over this issue to take a look at the empirical examples that I have in my book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, examples in Britain, in Norway, in Greece, and elsewhere of this kind of politics successfully short-circuiting the development of far-right movements to see that, of course, no method works all the time, but there is a track record of success. Right, but if it represents its own kind of political extremism, I, I, I think it's possible for reasonable people to, to be offended by, afraid of, and fearful of the, the far right, but to not, also not want to live under the thumb of the Marxist far left either. Well, I mean, uh, in North America, most of them are anarchists, so, you know, you can be critical of that as well, but it's certainly not, most of these people are not trying to revive the Soviet Union. But, yeah, certainly if you are pro-free market, for example, you're going to disagree with a lot, what a lot of anti-fascists have to say about economics, but at least in terms of the question of the imminent threat of the far right and neo-Nazis and white supremacists, there have been cases in the U.S. recently, Charlottesville most notably, but elsewhere, where, you know, it's helpful to have someone on the same side of the line with you who's willing to stand up when things get dangerous. Right. So at what point does it become legitimate self-defense in your view? Well, you know, I haven't done this work myself. I'm not part of a group, and I'm not trying to tell people when they should feel emboldened to defend themselves. I'm just simply saying that it's a question worth asking and that when, when marginalized communities are under attack, they have the right to make that determination on their own. And so that's really where I'm coming from with this. It's, it's, I know different circumstances merit different responses. Right. Well, what do you mean by marginalized community? I mean, are anarchists a marginalized community? Um, some anarchists are black. Some anarchists are queer. Some anarchists are trans. So in that sense, sure, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't talk about anarchists as a community in that sense. But certainly some anarchists are. Other anarchists are, you know... Uh, straight white men. So, you know, there's a range, but certainly in the context of, the, of this discussion, we've seen, for example, in Berkeley, when, when the predominantly people of color who organized the anti-racist demonstration there thanked the anti-fascists of the black bloc from showing up for showing up and pushing the far right out of the park, that there is an element of unity among certain tendencies of Black Lives Matter, the immigrant rights movement, and anti-fascism in the United States. Right. And I think, you know, if, it, if it's counter protesting, that's entirely reasonable and, and not, it shouldn't be controversial. If, if you hear that these groups are going to be uh, showing up to hold a rally, have a counter rally, show up in bigger numbers, show that you know, the vast majority of uh, people don't support your side, that if a thousand neo-Nazis are going to show up, 10,000 people show up to counter protest them. That, that's, why isn't that effective and powerful enough on its own? Well, it often is, and, and that's essentially what happened in Boston, and, that, and that's great. But, you know, partly what we're talking about here is anti-fascism is about a lot more than confrontation. It's about doing the kinds of work to monitor these groups all along and to try and stop them before they even become organized enough to hold a demonstration. And so, you know, I think that people can disagree about questions of confrontation, but also recognize that these groups are doing a lot of really important work that doesn't get any media attention and that makes our community safer. Um, and the thing is, when you show up even 10,000 people to confront the far right, there is still the chance that they're going to attack you. And we've seen that recently. So, you know, can, even even peaceful counter protesters should bear in mind that this is a dangerous game. And sometimes self-defense needs to be on the table. We also saw Boston, though, was jars of urine being thrown at police officers. We had uh, there was a protest in, in Quebec City and Antifa groups. There was uh, a cameraman who was attacked. So when you got elements of this movement saying, well, police are, are part of the problem. Police are fascist. Uh, the, the corporate media are fascist. Uh, that, that once once everybody's a fascist, where does this all end? 
Well, I don't think anyone is saying that journalists are fascists. I think that sometimes some, some issues arise when they're an anti-fascist are being photographed and filmed because that could be used in a court of law to, to prosecute them. Certainly in terms of the police, when we talk about these being revolutionary socialists, there is a critique from this politics of the police upholding the capitalist system. And in terms of white supremacy and fascism, you know, in the U.S., there's, there's well-documented evidence that a number of local law enforcement have been infiltrated by white power groups since the 90s. And, you know, in Charlottesville, they were notoriously absent. And certainly they, they seem to have at times a, a more of a sympathy for the far right than the far left. So that's going to be part of the politics. And, you know, at a certain point, this conversation boils down to what is your political analysis of the threat of fascism and what kinds of solutions do you think are legitimate? Anti-fascists turn to the history of the 20s, 30s, and 40s and say that really, if you let this grow, it could become too late before you know it. And we've seen that even happen more recently in Europe with the fascist Golden Dawn in Greece and some of the other Casa Pound in Italy and other parties, which sort of grow up overnight. And before you know it, it's too late. All right. Well, more of the book. It's called Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. Mark Bray, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. A pleasure. All right. So what do you make of that? 974-8255 is our number. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.